0: The lion had caught a helpless she-goat. Let me go, said the she-goat,
1: and I will give you a sheep, one of my companions.
0: If I am to let you go, said the lion, first tell me your name. The she-goat answered the lion,
1: Do you not know my name? My name is, you are clever.
0: And so when the lion came to the sheepfold, he roared out, Now that I have arrived at the sheepfold, I will release you. She answered him from the other side of the fence, saying,
1: So you have released me. Were you really so clever? Instead of giving you the sheep which I promised you, even I shall not stay here.
0: You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest. Annika. And we're listening to Sumerian Animal Proverbs. These are from southern Mesopotamia between about 2100 and 1600 B.C.E. As usual, most of these are from the ETCSL, and some are from the Samuel Noah Kramer book, History Begins at Sumer. So we mentioned the lion, who in these proverbs is a predator par excellence. He is at home in the open steppe country.
1: Oh lion, the dense bush is your ally. In the bush, the lion does not eat up the man who knows him.
0: This recalls the story of Androcles, which is a Roman story about the man who pulls the thorn out of the lion's paw, and then the lion later refuses to kill him.
1: That's a very well-known story. Yeah.
0: So the most common animal in these proverbs is the dog, for example. The ox plows, the dog spoils the deep furrows.
1: The dog went to a banquet, but when he looked at the bones there, he went away, saying, Where I am going now, I should get more to eat than this.
0: The smith's dog could not overturn the anvil, so he overturned the water pot instead. And my personal favorite.
1: When the lion came to the sheepfold, the dog was wearing a leash of spun wool. Huh, that's a very good one. Right. I love that.
0: (laughs) So a pig would be an archetypal sacrificial animal. So a lot of the proverbs about pigs are examples of Sumerian gallows humor example the fatted pig is about to be slaughtered and so he says it was the food which i ate or another version has let me replace what i eat
1: is this one is he saying like oh it wasn't me <laughs> it was like it was the food kind of thing
0: maybe i mean like it's not my
1: fault it was
0: it's not my fault i'm fads because of all the food that i ate yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah.
0: that would make sense mm-hmm.
1: oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> the pork butcher slaughters a pig saying must you squeal this is the road which your sire and your grandsire traveled and now you are going on it too and yet you're squealing.
0: Incredibly bleak. And also just like, kind of, hmm. <laughs> Wait,
1: what way?
0: You know, your father died. Your grandfather died. Yeah. You're dying too. You're going down the road towards your old eventual death. Uh, why are you complaining about it? Yeah, like, exactly. They didn't complain. Why you got to complain? <laughs> as the piglet roots around, it says, I do not eat for pleasure.
1: Okay.
0: Which I mean, I don't know. You could interpret that either as I only eat to fatten myself up for slaughter. Oh. Or I only eat because I have to because I'm hungry.
1: Yeah. Or, I don't know. Mm.
0: So we have some other proverbs about livestock.
1: The goat spoke in the manner of a. <laughs> the goat spoke in the manner of a wise old woman, but acted in the manner of an unclean woman.
0: Raised some questions.
1: Yeah.
0: Lascivious <laughs> goat. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot butt me with your horns. Who is it that you are butting? You cannot kill me. I am running away.
1: An elderly bull, after it stopped running around, said, "My former strength has returned to me." After it had been driven out from the other side of the town, it said, "My strength is only theoretical." <laughs>
0: So cats are not as prominent in these proverbs as dogs are. They might not have been fully considered pets yet, instead of just mousers. A cat for its thoughts, a mongoose for its actions, which indicates that a mongoose might have been kept as a pet. They do seem to be mentioned more than cats, for example.
1: If there's any food around, the mongoose consumes it. It leaves any food for me. A stranger comes and consumes it. That's really I, good. Yeah. I, you know, A
0: lot of these just strike me as kind of like mid-century stand-up humor. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's the, yeah. Like, like, I get no respect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My mongoose, which eats only spoiled food, will not climb up after beer and ghee. So the fox shows up as a belligerent blowhard in these proverbs. It's a wild animal that sometimes wanders into human settlements, and like a raccoon, it can get too comfortable and become a nuisance.
1: In the city where there are no dogs, the fox is boss.
0: The fox trod upon the hoof of the wild ox, saying, Didn't it hurt? <laughs>
1: The fox could not build his own house And so he went to the house of his friend As a conqueror
0: Oh, Which I mean is, is fun when you consider the fact that Humans build houses and then foxes sneak into them
1: yeah, yeah yeah
0: The fox having urinated into the sea Said the depths of the sea are my urine Oh
1: my god oh. No. I, I now own the sea like, yeah. it's, now, it's just my pee <laughs> The fox had a stick with him and said Whom shall I hit He carried a legal document with him and said, what can I challenge?
0: Right, that's fun.
1: Yeah, that is fun.
0: We have an early version of Don't Count Chickens Before the Hatch. He did not yet catch the fox, yet he is making a neck stock for it. Oh. So donkeys show up as lazy and obstinate, for example.
1: My donkey was not destined to run quickly. He was destined to bray.
0: The donkey, after he had thrown off his pack, said, the woes of the past are still plentiful in my ears.
1: Yeah, this does sound a lot like stand-up humor. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like a runaway donkey, my tongue does not turn around and come back.
0: My youthful vigor has quit my thighs like a runaway donkey. Ew. (laughs)
1: Okay. (laughs) Which,
0: I'm not certain that this is the context, but in other contexts, thighs is used as a euphemism for genitalia.
1: Yeah, that's what I was figuring. Were there a donkey without a stench, he would be a donkey without a groom?
0: So we have some miscellaneous proverbs. For example, the gecko wears a tiara.
1: The, I don't uh, know, like crested lizard kind of thing? or maybe. I don't know.
0: I have no clue what, the, what this it is for, but oh, I yeah. liked it.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the voice of the Ursang bird is the glory of the garden.
0: The voice of the frog is the glory of the marsh waters.
1: The voice of the frinklin is the glory of the fields.
0: So because I had to look it up, a frinklin is a bird related to quails and chickens. These birds later show up in recipes. So we have one about an elephant. The elephant boasted about himself, saying, There is nothing like me in existence. The wren answered him, saying, But I, too, in my own small way, was created just as you were. We have a series of variations on a theme about monkeys.
1: All of Eridu is prosperous, but the monkey of the great music hall sits in the garbage heap.
0: In Eridu, built in abundance, the monkey sits with longing eyes in the singer's house. So this great music hall monkey was apparently famous. A different text is a humorous letter. We have four copies of this letter, which makes it, in Samuel Noah Kramer's words, a minor literary classic. Oh. So it says, To Lusa Lusa, my mother, speak. Thus says Mr. Monkey. Ur is the delightful city of the god Nana. Eridu is the prosperous city of the god Enki. But here am I, sitting behind the doors of the great music hall. I must eat garbage. May I not die from it? I don't even get a taste of bread. I don't even get a taste of beer. Send me a special courier. Urgent.
1: Do you want to talk about how these tropes show up later, maybe?
0: Probably the most obvious is the fox. Yeah. Because kind of throughout Eurasian mythology, foxes always play the same role. Yeah. I don't know why that is specifically, other than because they're wild animals that can become commensal in a human environment. You know, eating human trash, eating mice and rats that eat the grain.
1: Yeah.
0: We talked in episode one about the foxes in the Tufian sites, that they're buried with people. They may have been hunted for pelts. They may have been pest catchers. And they may have had some kind of religious relationship with specific people. So we have, like, quote-unquote shamans that are buried with foxes and a bunch of other specific stuff that looks like it has ritual importance. Mm-hmm. And those aren't usually exclusive. Like, they may have been hunted and ritually important, and used for pest control yeah. or whatever. So.
1: Yeah. yeah, I guess it's interesting because obviously we don't have like widespread domestic foxes today. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's because they were close enough to humans to have that relationship, but they were never fully able to be tamed. Right. So maybe that's kind of why they're a trickster because they're a friend, but they'll also bite you. You know yeah, what I mean? This kind sense. of this kind of like I'm close to you, but I never know your true friends. Right. Yeah.
0: At some point in the 20th century, there were these Russian experiments on foxes basically trying to figure out if they could be domesticated. Yeah. So they they were able to tame them. Like, over several generations of foxes, I think their legs got shorter. And in other ways, their bodies changed in the same ways that domestic animals change. Mm-hmm. Not as much, because it was only a couple of generations. Yeah. But it showed that there's no categorical difference between a fox and a wolf mm-hmm. that would prevent foxes from being domesticated.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because other other creatures, like the donkey, for example, they're like, he'll complain a lot, but he'll still do what he's told. Right. Instead of having him be outright a trickster.
0: That's also interesting because of how, unlike you know livestock, donkeys were not intensively domesticated, mm-hmm. and their bodies physically did not change that much from the wild ass. Mm-hmm. Partially because they were continuously interbreeding with wild asses. So it may be that just, you know, it's like the natural predisposition of a donkey is, it will be fine to pull carts for you, but it's also going to wander off if it wants to. So we're going to finish up today with a diatribe which is a literary genre of creative insults. So the Sumerian version of a diss track.
1: He is a good seed of a dog, the offspring of a wolf. He is the stench of a mongoose, an unruly hyena cub, a fox with a covering like a crab's, A monkey not pleasing to its homeland, its judgment confused. Sorry, (laughs) so mean. Right? His face is disfigured. His judgment is muddled. His intelligence is lacking. A smitten man who makes himself important. He's negligent, the son of a hound. A madman, crazy, he is a pitfall, speaking evil words, denouncing, with an evil mouth and a forked tongue. He lies on the bank of a river, allowing the grappling holes to drown. He is a thief, breaking into houses, removing the door and tearing out the door pivot, not entering the house of another man. He quarrels with him and disturbs his household. He is a bastard. May he follow an unfamiliar path. May he walk among the thorns of the mountain. And I wonder what he did. Yeah, like.
0: <laughs> His ox cart cut him off in traffic.
1: He's like, I'll show
0: you. <laughs> An unruly hated cub, a fox with a shell like a crab.
1: <laughs> well, I guess it's funny that animals are given human traits, but when humans displease others, they're given animal traits. Mm-hmm. So it's just, they're kind of in this middle ground of being compared to humans and just kind of like a mirror for human behavior.
0: Right. So this episode will cover the early Neolithic in western Iran and the process of domesticating livestock. That is the transition from hunting wild herds of animals to raising domestic herds. As with agriculture, what began as a time-saving life hack eventually became a full-time job. But with a more predictable source of nutrition, people were less reliant on nature and hunting for their nutrition. We're going to look at the site of ganj de Rey, a site in western Iran with some of the oldest evidence for goat domestication and what appears to be genetic evidence that all modern domestic goats are descended from this particular domestication event. We'll also look at the Iranian sites of Ali Kosh and Choga Bonat. So starting with a look at domestication, as we've been talking about, domestication is when humans raise animals and artificially select for specific traits in those animals. So before humans can do this, they need control over every part of that animal's reproduction, including controlling which animals reproduce and which ones don't. So modern herders tend to cull most young males before maturity, that is, around the time they reach maximum size, but you don't want them continuing to eat your resources for the rest of their life. So you keep a couple males around for breeding, you get to pick which ones to control their behavior over time, and then you'll want to keep your females around until they pass peak reproductive years. At this point, they're not raising them for wool, and they may or may not be raising them for dairy yet, so if you're only raising them for meat, you need females around until they can't give birth anymore, and then you may as well kill them and eat them. In other words, you don't want to waste your feed, you want to maximize meat output, and you want to keep your herd growing over time. Some of these herding strategies might have evolved from hunting strategies. So the most efficient and sustainable way to hunt wild goats is to only kill males after they've reached reproductive maturity, to leave young adult females alone, because of course they're the ones that are going to give birth and raise new goats. These practices can help you maintain a local population, which is important because there are finite resources in any particular region. If you kill more large males and old females... The herd will have fewer mouths to feed, which leads to a lower risk of hunger and malnutrition for the herd as a whole. This means that humans and wild animals both have an interest in protecting the herd of wild animals in the long term. It leads to an increased incentive for humans to hunt predators, which is of course more dangerous, but a concerted human effort can wipe out the local population of top predators. Over time though, it appears that people may have gotten too good at hunting. We talked about desert kites last episode, which would be an efficient means of killing large amounts of gazelle in the wild. This is great in the short term because, of course, it results in food, but it's worse in the long term because, of course, eventually they're going to go extinct. Incidentally, this kind of overhunting is how female sheep lost their horns by the 5000s BCE. So in the wild, both male and female sheep used to have horns, but growing agricultural societies put more pressure on people to find more food. So a larger population of humans hunted more, putting an increased strain on population, and in order to avoid wiping out the local population so people wouldn't kill sheep that had not yet grown their horns, So the handful of females with a mutation that prevented them from growing horns were able to survive through adulthood because all the hunters assumed they were just immature animals instead of just mutants. So this resulted in a kind of accidental artificial selection, where females lost a defensive trait once common to both male and female sheep. But now females would resemble juveniles throughout adulthood, so eventually hunting practices permanently changed the genes of wild sheep in this region. So eventually a growing human population supported by a grain surplus needs a more reliable source of meat. You can't keep overhunting wild populations forever, especially as the human population grows. So the solution here is to raise herds of sheep and goat. If you're not too tied to a particular plot of farmland, you can take these herds across the grasslands from one source of water to another. Like early small-scale agriculture, this is compatible with continued foraging. Just like early foragers, you're traveling to a lot of different places, so you won't overharvest resources in any one particular place. It's also compatible with small-scale seasonal agriculture. You You can spend part of the year taking your herds around the landscape and then come back to help with the harvest. So for now we're going to focus on goats. At the beginning of the Neolithic, morphologically, goats in domestic contexts have very similar skeletons to the wild Bezobar ibex, which are large with long scimitar-shaped horns. At the site of Asiab in western Iran in the mid-9000s, or the early PPNA, 70% of goats were older than four years old. This was true for both males and females, but they seemed to have preferred hunting males with a three to two ratio of males to females. So in the first phase, you would capture wild goats and raise them in the village, spatially separate from wild herds. So like we talked about in episode three, this would be a kind of backup supply of meat in case hunting and gathering didn't work out. The easiest and most convenient way to do this would be to capture mothers and young offspring, which are all less aggressive and easier to manage than males. And because sheep, goats, and cattle are naturally social creatures, they can bond with people. So domestic animals need to be socialized with people in order to live among them. And the more contact they have with people, the more comfortable they'll be with people because people have control over the reproductive conditions. Eventually, the animal's genes will change. And of course, people artificially selecting for specific genes is only possible in a domestic context. So over time, people would start to manipulate genetics by calling certain males, which ensures that only more docile males contribute to the gene pool. Over time, this transitions into breeding a captive population. Humans control every aspect of animals' reproduction, which animals get to reproduce, and which get eaten first. So now people have control over both nature and nurture, not only the behavior of animals, but also the genetic makeup of the population pool as a whole. So at sites in Syria and Palestine. We see sheep found outside their natural habitat by around 8,000 BCE, which is evidence that people were controlling the actions of early herds. And over time, we'll see sheep and goat remains replace gazelles in pre-pottery Neolithic bee villages. Speaking of which, the pre-pottery Neolithic B, so about 8,500 to 7,000 BCE, is when agriculture spreads across the Fertile Crescent. It's also when livestock species are first being domesticated. So I mentioned that mobile herding would be a new way to exploit the grassland. Remember, during the Younger Dryas, late Natufian peoples were forced to eat small-seeded grasses. There's probably a reason why they stopped at the earliest opportunity. These kinds of grasses are not very nutritious for humans. But they're exactly what sheep and goats want. There's basically infinite grass, and it grows back every year. So humans were able to take something they didn't have to work to create, which is wild grass. And by means of sheep, they could turn this directly into meat and leather and eventually dairy and wool and so on. This opens up a lot of new land. So before, it was a bad idea to live far away from diverse wild plant populations, because you'd be foraging them. But now your food has legs and it travels around with you, and it only needs access to grass to stay alive. Sheep can eat plants that people can't, of course. And you wouldn't have to carry a huge amount of food around with you. So as I've been saying, the oldest use of domestic herd animals was for meat. During the later pre-pottery Neolithic bee, we see old females kept alive until old age, which is inefficient for making meat and leather, which indicates that they may have been used for milking. This is hard to prove before we can find lipids from dairy products and potsherds. Obviously, we won't find any potsherds until the Pottery Neolithic after 7,000 BCE. But eventually, milk and dairy will become the basis of mobile herding people's diet. Sheep can turn brackish water into potable milk. If you're near bad water that humans can't drink, maybe sheep can drink it, and humans can drink the milk that sheep produce with that water. But of course, this is useless if people are lactose intolerant. Genes allowing adults to process dairy only became common during the Neolithic. We'll talk about that later. So like I said, these sheep were not capable of growing wool yet. They would have used herds for leather, and they probably would have made use of their fibers as much as possible, making felt and so on. In a pinch, you can drink a little blood without killing the animal. So we see some common characteristics of herding societies. That is, societies that have an economy centered on livestock herding as opposed to agriculture or foraging, as Juris Zarins wrote in a 1990 article, they tend to share, quote, strong, localized kinship and lineage bonds, impermanent dwellings, movement to procure pasturage and water for herds, and specific relationships to formal states, end quote. That said, though, earlier generations of scholars have tended to overemphasize the mobile aspect of these herding peoples. This partially results from centuries of fascination with biblical patriarchs who are wandering around with huge herds of animals. This leads to an essentialized picture of a people removed from or antithetical to quote unquote civilization, quote unquote civilization being people from big agricultural societies projecting their own insecurities onto outsiders. This has a longer history than you might think. So Ibn Khaldun was a scholar who lived in the late 14th century. He was from the Arab Maghreb. He invented several modern social sciences, including historiography and sociology and writing about pastoralist peoples both of his day and in history, he wrote, quote, urbanization is found to be the goal to which the dweller of the rural areas aspires. Through his own efforts, he achieves his perceived goal. When he has obtained enough to be ready for the conditions and customs of luxury, he enters upon a life of ease and submits himself to the yoke of the city, end quote. So in a 2013 paper, Cheryl Makarowitz summarizes his argument, agricultural societies could produce a surplus resulting in growing social complexity, but herders couldn't, resulting in small-scale egalitarian societies. But a harder herding lifestyle would give herders unique, quote, courage and strength, end quote. So Ibn Khaldun says this rugged lifestyle makes desert nomads, quote, healthier in body and better in character than the hill people who have everything. Their complexions are clearer, their bodies cleaner, their figures more perfect, the character less intemperate, and their minds keener as far as knowledge and perception are concerned, end quote. So, of course, this is part of a long historical tradition of interpreting mobile herding people in a particular way, which has produced a kind of romanticized ideal type of quote-unquote mobile pastoralist. We see this in the writings of British imperialists like Gertrude Bell and Lawrence of Arabia, and this conception has lots in common with the noble-savage archetype. You know, people who live a rough life who are barely above subsistence, but this tough life results in people who are rugged and hardworking and perceptive, you know, not book-smart but street-smart, etc. The idea being that these qualities make them better equipped to elbow their way into a society full of weak and lazy city-dwellers which as the thinking goes was their goal all along, but the more time they spend in the society and the weaker and lazier they get, the more likely they are to be conquered by a new group of rugged outdoorsy types, and the cycle continues. Might remind you of history podcaster Dan Carlin's favorite Voltaire quote, which is, history is filled with the sound of silken slippers going downstairs and wooden shoes going up. This is not the place to unpack the ideological ramifications of this line of thinking, but it is a very common idea, and not only in the modern West, or even in the late medieval Arab world, it's also a very common Chinese conception of the herders to their north and west. I also just want to add that the arrow doesn't only point in one direction. Settled farmers also sometimes take up mobile herding. You know, they might be escaping slavery or taxes or tribute or the military draft or just a bad climate for farming. It just that history doesn't tend to record random peasants becoming shepherds as much as it cares about shepherding people eventually gaining political control over the state. Isolated migrations between peasants and herders and vice versa is not especially notable to government bureaucrats, who are generally the kind of people who leave historical records behind. So in marginal environments, like mountains or plains far away from the major river valleys, people would have found a better environment for mobile herding than for large-scale agriculture. It's a lot easier to find grass that sheep will eat than to find good farmland, especially because you don't need to find a source of fresh water. This led to a kind of patterned migration, so we see regular seasonal migration along established routes, for herders to exploit far-flung grasslands, that is, land useless for agriculture. So settled farmers and mobile herders don't usually tend to trade the staples of their diet with each other, that is, agricultural societies make all their own wool, and herders make all of their own food. They're not directly dependent on each other for daily subsistence. for the same reason that you wouldn't want to be dependent on your rival and sometimes enemy for your daily meals. But these two economies can complement each other. Mobile herders necessarily move around a lot, So, for example, they might move from sources of obsidian in the north to the Jazeera plains down south. They're already traveling and interacting with lots of different people along the way, so they may as well trade and, you know, acquire small amounts of high-quality goods in one place and trade them away elsewhere. This trade can also include large-scale exchanges of wealth. For example, a marriage between a farmer and a herder. The two parties might exchange animals and or land and or other types of wealth, jewelry and so on. And, of course, they might celebrate the occasion with feasts or religious ceremonies. These kinds of social ties would allow goods to flow across the economy. And strengthen relationships between different groups of people along the way, but earlier academia tends to conflate all herding with mobile herding. So, as we see at Ali Kosh later on in this episode, even very early on in the history of raising herds outside their natural habitat, they kept them there year-round. Earlier academics assumed that in the transition to herding, there was a kind of intermediate phase where people would travel seasonally with herds, and that doesn't appear to have happened at Ali Kosh. In other words, expectations of Neolithic herders are often based on modern ethnography. And it's important to remember that most people were trying to supplement their existing lifestyle, not replace it with a totally different one. So people would have kept farming in the same place, but as they continue to herd more and more animals and get better at herding, they're also going to build some animal pens and apparently graze those animals nearby their sedentary settlement. So early on, at these pre-pottery Neolithic bee herding sites, like Asikli Huryuk from episode 3 and Ganjere, which we'll look at in just a sec, we already see animal pens built in or near villages and maintained year-round. And as we saw at Asikli Hiryuk, this is not great for those animals, but herding practices will improve over time. So, Ganj Dare was occupied between about 8200 and 7600 BCE in the Gama Siab River Valley in the Zagros Highlands, where in western Iran, in the eastern half of the Fertile Crescent, near modern Harsan, and were 1400 meters above sea level. So, during the pre pottery Neolithic B, buildings here were rectangular with thick mud brick walls made of a kind of cigar-shaped mud brick which first appears here and then spreads across southwestern Iran. The only domestic cereal they're growing is a type of two-road, hold barley, which is morphologically domestic, but an early type. In other words, they're already artificially selecting for specific traits of this barley, but they haven't gotten very far in that process. We also see a fair amount of wild barley, which may have been weeds in domestic barley fields. We also see wild plants, like wild lentils, pistachios, milk vetch, and club rush, as well as clay figurines, both animals and people, which are similar to those in nearby sites in Iran. These figurines are lightly baked. So as at Troy, fired clay figurines predate fired clay pots. So we've been talking about a skull cult that may have linked different Neolithic communities. So in the Western Fertile Crescent, this looks like building plaster skulls with real skulls in them. In the North and the West, this results in separate burials of heads and bodies. So in the Eastern Fertile Crescent here in Western Iran, what we see is head shaping or cranial modification. So for the first two years after birth, the skull is soft enough to be molded by bandages or board or other devices. Essentially, once you shape the skull in a particular way, it's irreversible after about age two. Although this process changes the shape of the skull, it does not affect brain function. So of one group of 10 skulls from Gansdure, six had their head shaped, two men, two women, and two children. So head shaping does not appear to be related to a particular gender. Three of these skulls were buried in the same clay sarcophagus, which is notable because we don't have any other sarcophagi at Gondaray. The type of head shaping we see here is circumferential head shaping, which is when you tie one or two bands around the head like a headband. Over time, the back of the skull gets longer, and the skull continues to grow like that even after the bands are removed. This would be an intentional way to make some people permanently visually distinct. It would make harder to carry loads, for example water, on your head, which would be a common form of work in early agricultural societies, and the fact that these people were unable to do that labor may have been a marker of status. In other words, if you know that someone's going to be in the chiefly stratum of society, you might want to shape their head in a way that makes it sure that they'll never have to do the kind of work that would be unbecoming of the chiefly stratum. In other words, it's a way to reify a social difference with a physical difference, which then reinforces and literalizes the social difference between people. From Ganj-Duray, we will see this kind of head shaping spread to Ali Kosh, which we we'll talk about today, in lowland southwestern Iran in the 6000s BCE and ubaid Eridu in southern Mesopotamia in the 4000s BCE. So like I said, the Bezoar goat is the wild ancestor of domestic goats. And like other domestic animals, wild goats were regularly hunted before the Neolithic. Like the earliest farmers, they lived in mountains, but not in the plains. So from records in Iraq and southeastern Anatolia, as early as 10,000 BCE, people were hunting two to three-year-old males, which is kind of a way of culling a wild herd. From here, we see a fast transition from herd management to full domestication, so people were capturing females and their offspring to raise near their settlements. I talked about how, at first, it would capture a baby and then raise it while it grows the fastest and then eat it, and then eventually commit to more and more human involvement in goat breeding. We already saw evidence of goat herding at Asikli Hiryuk, along with sheep, who live very similar lifestyles to goats. Both animals were kept in pens within the settlement. Goats might have been preferred for their milk. They're easier to milk than cows and sheep, and goat milk has a lower fat content, which makes it closer to human milk than to sheep milk. So it's a better candidate for weaning babies off breast milk. Goat's gestation is 120 days, so goats can give birth twice a year. In other words, they give birth faster than sheep who can only give birth once a year. So at Ganjere, we see strong evidence for managed herds of goats. This is the animal equivalent of cultivation, where you have human supervision over reproduction. It's not quite domestication at first, because we don't see any artificial selection at first. So among this early evidence, we see goat hoofprints in a clay brick at Ganjere. So in other words, goats are not certainly domesticated by 8200 BCE, but this is the time and place where that last step happens. And as we'll see, modern domestic goats have genes from this time and place. So at Ganjere, only one in five goats survive beyond age four, which represents intensive culling practices. Meanwhile, most sheep are adults and were probably still hunted wild early on. To look at sex, two-thirds of males were culled before two and a half years old, compared to one-third of females. And in general, females always outnumber males. The exact ratio varies over time. And like at acyclohyruc, we see lots of stillborn goats. These usually correlate with proximity both to each other and to human settlements, and probably reflects disease spread between goats kept in close quarters. So mitochondrial DNA is passed down through the X chromosome, and in general, the diversity of mitochondrial genes is lower in female livestock. So 92% of modern goats belong to the same mitochondrial haplogroup. But at Gondre, mitochondrial DNA is extremely diverse. We see six different haplogroups represented over its occupation. They're closely related to goats at the nearby site of Abdul Hussein. And in some cases, these goats form intersite clades that coalesce between about 11,000 and 8,000 BCE. But on the other hand, wild goats, Y-chromosomal diversity is as low as physically possible. So all Y-chromosomal sequences that we found from the early Neolithic Zagros belong to a single lineage, not just domestic goats, but also wild goats. This is unusual. Male goats belong to different haplogroups in the Taurus Mountains. And we see two different lineages in Serbia and Turkmenistan, and this lineage is now rare in wild and domestic Iranian goats and absent from wild males, but within domestic males, we see additional evidence of restrictive breeding, so people were culling most males and occasionally capturing wild females, leading to a more diverse female line, but an increasingly homogenous male line. Crucially, people are already controlling which goats their herd reproduces with, leading to a genetically isolated group, but no genetic evidence of artificial selection yet. So even if they are trying to select for particular traits, it's not showing up in genes quite yet. In other words, this is basically the very beginning of goat domestication, sometime around 8000 BCE, around the same time as a Sikli Hiryuk. And we see the first morphologically domestic goats by the late 7000s BCE at Ali Kosh in the lowlands of southwestern Iran, which is outside the native range of wild goats. Over time, their bodies and their horns will both get smaller. And this, along with a different shape, shows us that they're certainly domestic by this point. So, a genetic study of goats at Ganjare shows two distinct clusters. Most goats at Ganjere are related to modern domestic goats, and the other cluster is closer to modern wild goats in the Zagros Mountains. So at this point, we see that managed herds are already distinct genetically from wild goats. These early managed herds, which are transitioning to a domestic situation, share ancestry with later Neolithic populations, which is evidence of continuous interbreeding between domestics from this point on. And also as of 2021, these are the oldest known domestic livestock genomes. So among modern domestic goats, the goats at Ganjderay are most closely related to goats from Central and East Asia. So we see that from this point in Iran, domestication spread eastward across Eurasia. And of course, once they left the native habitat of wild goats, they were interbreeding less and less with wild goats. So domestic goats are monophyletic. In other words, all of them are descended from this initial domestication event. The reason Ganjderay goats are closer to Asian than European goats is because domestic goats in Europe interbred more with different populations, which is a similar situation to what we see in pigs. So in other words, all goats east of the range of wild goats are directly descended from this group of goats, and many groups west of the range of domestic goats have a more diverse gene pool because they interbred with different populations of wild goats. Obviously, a higher genetic diversity results from a larger breeding pool that has access to lots of different populations. At first, during the early era of herd management, diversity was high. We see a steady influx of new animals captured from different herds, and it's unclear if they allowed their herds to mate with wild males. But as domestication spread out of goat's native range, that is, west through Anatolia into the Balkan Peninsula, and from there across Europe, or east through Iran into Turkmenistan and from there into the rest of Asia, genetic diversity decreases because small herds have no wild populations to mate with, only other descendants of that same Zagros population. But over time, as lots of different people acquire domestic goats and start trading them along trade routes spanning continents, genetic diversity starts to increase again. So even if they're all descended from these goats in the Neolithic Zagros, they've mixed with lots of different populations all across Eurasia and Africa, leading to the modern range of types of goat that we see today. One more note on goats is brucellosis. So human brucellosis is the most common bacterial zoonosis today. That is the most common disease-causing bacteria that originated in animals and then spread to humans. It was first reported in the Bronze Age. Sheep and goats are the main reservoir of this disease. It can spread by contact with infected animals and also unpasteurized dairy products and this disease can be sustained in a population even with low levels of transmission, and especially the more you interact with outside livestock, the more likely it is to spread. We see a possible archaeological case of human brucellosis at ganj de Rey, as well as Alikosh and Jarmo in the same region. We see evidence of milking by the 7,000s BCE, which would be one vector for this disease to spread to humans. So as we've been talking about, a key part of herding is culling young adult males, leading to a majority female population, and because females transmit brucellosis to their young, and to whoever drinks their milk, culling young males increases the chance of brucellosis becoming endemic in a population. And because of these complex trade networks that we see even in the Neolithic, even small-scale trade can transmit this disease, leading it to become endemic in the entire network. So even if you can eradicate it from a particular population of goats, the instant that you acquire new goats from elsewhere, you are likely to reintroduce it to the population. So let's look at the site of Ali Kosh. It was first occupied in the late 7,000s BCE, the same time as Chogabonat, which we'll also look at today. It's in the lowland Loran Plain. And as I mentioned, Alikosh is outside the natural range of the major domestic species, wheat, barley, sheep, and goats. So in other words, instead of living in the region first and then domesticating the local species, they brought already existing domestic populations with them to this new site. They may have settled here because of a growing population. The more food you have access to, the more babies survive and grow up, leading to more strain on finite local resources. So You have two choices in dealing with this. You can either fundamentally shift the methods of your subsistence and social governance or send out a few households elsewhere to found a new village. The latter option gives you a new ally, vicarious access to trade partners and marriage partners and so on. So early on, the people at Alikosh lived by a combination of foraging, farming, and herding. They grew domestic einkorn, emmer, and six-row barley. And we also see wild einkorn and two-row barley. They raised domestic animals like sheep and goat. They hunted wild animals like gazelle, onager, gerbil, and birds. We see pigs, which may or may not be partially domesticated, similar to Halan Chemi from episode 3. During the summer, that is the agricultural off-season, herds of sheep and goats would graze in and around the fields. This would, of course, feed the herds and also fertilize the fields. This practice is documented by around 7,000 BCE. We've also found these herds burned dung, and by analyzing it, we found a high ratio of cereals to other species, which shows that they were fed domestic cereals as fodder and grazed in and around fields, not only in the hills. We also see evidence that Alikosh was inhabited year-round. So juvenile goats would be cold in the spring and summer, unlike later herding groups which graze their herds in the highland during the summer. This, combined with the lots of grain in animals' diet, shows that cereal farming was very important to these peoples. In terms of stone tools, we don't see much change from earlier periods. Grinding stones and querns are rare, so they didn't spend much time grinding cereals. We see 347 pieces from obsidian blades, much more than other Iranian sites. In general, obsidian will get more common over time. And, like at Ganjere, we see typical animal figurines made of clay, and also more abstract, quote-unquote, finger-shaped figurines. To look at skeletons, we see one burial, including at least 11 people. Skulls and jaws are overrepresented in this burial, compared to non-head bones. We also see several hundred beads, some made of seashells, and most of these skeletons are covered in red ochre. It's not clear what this is, but the fact that we have more skulls than other bones might indicate some connection to the skull cult. Also at Alikosh, we see head shaping, like a ganjure. At least three female skulls from Alikosh appear to have been modified in this way. Another cultural modification, which we talked about in episode two, is pulling their front teeth out. So all adult men had their top right front tooth pulled out, but no children or adolescents. It's not clear if women did this too. The only definite female skull analyzed was an old woman who had lost many teeth, so it's hard to tell. This tooth removal might have been a rite of passage. It also appeared in Natufian culture, and as we mentioned, in prehistoric Italy and northern Africa but it's not otherwise known from the Eastern Fertile Crescent. Speaking of teeth, we don't see any evidence of cavities, so we know their diet wasn't especially high in sugars, so not a lot of bread, beer, or dairy. So the earliest phase at Alikosh dates from the late 7,000s BCE. We see no pottery, but we do see permanent architecture, so we know they were living here year-round. Their buildings are made of mud bricks, 15 by 25 by 5 to 10 centimeters, which would weigh between 1.7 and 3.5 kilograms of clay. Already during this earliest phase, we see 12 clay tokens, which are small spheres, that is, they arrived with not only farming and herding, but also a system of record-keeping. These tokens tell us a few things. They were able to count, manage, and administer goods. Later spheres often stood for amounts of grain, so they may be measuring grain with these tokens. In a 2018 paper, Denise chamant Besseret says this may be evidence of a redistributive economy that is a central public institution storing and dispersing grain. Obviously, grain has a long shelf life, and it'll be easy to subdivide and transport and so on. This is, of course, looking forward to a very long history of powerful public institutions with a record-keeping system that allows them to store and disperse grain. And tokens are a key part of that, and we'll spend more time looking at tokens during the Pottery Neolithic. The second phase at Kosh starts around 6900 BCE. Buildings are still built with this kind of long, cigar-shaped mud brick, which is more typical of early Susiana. We also see six tokens and 474 pieces of obsidian. During this period, houses get bigger with multiple rooms. We see more land around Kosh getting cultivated which is a sign of population growth. And the third of three phases is between about 6700 and 6500 BCE. This is when we see the first pottery at Alikosh. They might have learned how to make ceramics from Susiana to the south. During this period, we see another two tokens. And also in this third phase, we see T-shaped figurines like at Chogamish. We'll look at Chogamish in episode 10. These are first found at Chogabonat during its earliest occupation, and they show up later here at Alikosh. And some imported materials in this third phase at Alikosh include 417 pieces of obsidian from Anatolia. We see copper, maybe from central Iran, turquoise from northeastern Iran, specular hematite, maybe from southern Iran, and seashells from the Persian Gulf. And we're going to finish up today by looking at Chogabonat. So Chogabonat is the earliest known settlement in the lowlands of southwestern Iran, that is, in what will later be the area of Susiana, centered on the city of Susa. We'll look at that in episode 16. So we're southwest of Gondre, closer to the Persian Gulf, but still inland and above sea level. And we're six kilometers west of Chogamish, which, as I mentioned, we'll look at in episode 10. So Chogabona was first occupied at the end of the pre-pottery Neolithic bee, around 7200 BCE. So we're right on the cusp of the pottery Neolithic. And the pre-pottery Neolithic bee was a climatic optimum. So abundant resources everywhere would be a kind of safety net. It would allow people to experiment with new subsistence strategies, including farming and herding, without risking starvation. So based on remains from Chogabona, we see a ratio of three sheep for every five goats. This ratio is unusually low compared to other periods. But it does make sense because, of course, both Ganjderay and Ali Kosh relied primarily on goats. Half of sheep and goats slaughtered were under two years old. This is more indicative of domestic culling than wild hunting, but twice as many females as males were killed, which is unusual and it probably shows that they weren't reliant on wool or milk yet. This is a similar culling strategy to what we see at later Shafarabad during the Uruk period. During the breeding season, it wanted to clear room for new lambs, so you killed young males and females past reproductive age. Over time, females become more common. Sheep and goat joints with the most meat are overrepresented. This might be sampling bias, or it might indicate that some animals were butchered in the field and that they would only take the meatiest joints back to the village. Some cattle were apparently domestic here, and others were wild. They apparently kept a small herd of domestic cattle for security, but mostly hunted wild cattle. They kept less than one-sixth as many cattle as they did sheep and goats, which is a normal range for small-scale herding. The parts of the cow with less meat are overrepresented, so we know animals were killed on site, and their bones might have been used for tools. We don't know either way whether they were milked or not. Pigs at the site may or may not have been domestic, but were probably wild. We see gazelle bones. Their hides may have been processed on site. We see wild ass. We see bear bones. Of course, the brown bear lives in the mountains, not the plains, so they were probably killed in the mountains and brought back for ceremonial reasons, maybe. And we see one porcupine bone, which may be because a porcupine dug a burrow down into earlier archaeological layers. Maybe not because they were eating porcupine. Who knows? We also see a giant Indian gerbil. We have several remains of the species, including a complete skeleton. Today, this region is too dry for gerbils. Instead, the same niche is filled by the Sandoval's gerd, which is a desert rodent. This is evidence that during this period, Susiana had a wetter climate and grass year-round, making it a perfect environment for either dry farming or irrigation agriculture. So the very earliest period at Chogabonat was between about 7200 and 6900 BCE. We see fire pits and post holes, either for simple homes or for animal pens. We see stone tools and debris, along with animal bones. We don't see any buildings during this period, but we do see mud bricks tempered with straw, so they did know how to build, we just haven't found their buildings. Already during this period, we see clay tokens, which as I mentioned, will be a very important system of record-keeping later on. We also see groups of rocks, some of which were painted with red ochre, which may have been another way to record some type of information. In terms of animal remains, we see articulated sheep and goat legs, that is, legs that were discarded with the connective tissue intact instead of being butchered. We also see two goat horns and remains from dogs and pigs, as well as freshwater animals like two fish vertebrae, a trunk of carapace from a Caspian terrapin, and cormorant bones. So the next level is the formative ceramic period between about 6900 and 6700 BCE. We have two buildings preserved. One of them was damaged by a bulldozer that dug out a trunk of the hillside. Archaeologist Abbas Ali Zadeh is pretty unhappy about the damage this bulldozer did, and I guess I don't blame him. The other building is almost square, with several fire pits and fire cracked rocks, which are typical of early Neolithic sites in Iran. The several pits in a single building might show that it was used for non-domestic purposes. In other words, this might have been a public building producing for an entire community, and it might have been part of a larger building complex. Most houses at the site are two to three rooms with an open courtyard with fire pits and fire cracked rocks. They're built with the same kind of cigar-shaped bricks that we've been talking about. These kind of bricks are awkward to deal with, but they're widespread across southwestern Iran, as well as central and southern Mesopotamia. We'll see them at Tel-el-Uwele in southern Mesopotamia, and Chogamami in central Mesopotamia. Like elsewhere in the region, we have no evidence that adults were buried within the settlement, and it's hard to know details about social status if we have no grave goods. This is when we see the first pottery at Chogabonat. Again, the early 6000s is essentially when pottery is invented in the Near East. These are plain, crude vessels with traces of paint, and they're tempered with straw. That is, they use agricultural refuse to make the clay stronger. In terms of art, we see the same type of T-shaped figurines that we saw at Alikosh. These are made of stone or clay, as well as imported materials like obsidian blades and seashells from the Persian Gulf. We see plain tokens like elsewhere, but we also see tokens with lines or nail impressions on them. Different symbols on different tokens might show that different tokens meant or counted different things. Compared to Alikosh, Chogabonet had lots of tokens and lots of different types of tokens, but no evidence of long distance trade. We have a similar situation at Ganjere. We have no obsidian, but lots of tokens. But by contrast, Kosh had lots of imported materials, but very few tokens, which shows us that tokens were not used for trade between settlements. Instead, they were used to keep track of local resources within the community and exchange within the community as stand-ins or promises or receipts of actual transactions. That is, they were stored as stand-ins for actual wealth. So the last period here is the Archaic Susiana Zero period, lasting between about 6700 and 6500 BCE. During this last phase, we see a rectangular building with cigar-shaped bricks. By the southwestern part of the southern wall, we see a platform of unknown function. The southern wall is reinforced with two low buttresses made from the same type of brick. We also see remains of pavement and maybe a storage bin. This may have been an early public building or maybe just a house. Nearby, we have a smaller building, better preserved, with the same types of bricks and also storage bins plastered with mud. So Chogabona was deserted around 6500 BCE, around the same time that Chogamish was founded nearby. We will visit Chogamish, like I said in episode 10, and Chogabona will also return near the height of interregional connectivity around 5200 BCE, so stay tuned. Aruru, the goddess of creation, dipped her hands in water and pinched off clay. She let it fall in the wilderness, and noble Enkidu was created. There was virtue in him of the god of war, of Ninurta himself. His body was rough, he had long hair like a woman's. It waved like the hair of Nisaba, the goddess of grain. His body was covered with matted hair like Samukans, the god of cattle. He was innocent of mankind. He knew nothing of the cultivated land. And we are reading Nancy Sandar's translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is an Akkadian literary work with a long textual history. This version of it was probably written down around 1100 BCE and is based on earlier Sumerian stories dating back to the 21st century BCE. So it's 1500 years too late to be the first literature, but it is, I would argue, the first good literature. We'll have more episodes on Gilgamesh later. All you need to know for now is that Gilgamesh is the tyrannical king of the Sumerian city-state of Unuk or Uruk. He is the son of a goddess and a mortal father. And to punish him for his hubris, the gods have created an opponent named Enkidu, who is half-human, half-beast. Enkidu ate grass in the hills with the gazelle and lurked with wild beasts at the waterholes. He had joy of the water with the herds of wild game. But there was a trapper who met him one day, face to face at the drinking hole, for the wild game had entered his territory. So the trapper is terrified, His job involves entering the territory of wild animals where they drink, and killing animals with human tools, not feats of strength. But now Enkidu has entered his territory, so the trapper runs home to his father. With awe in his heart, he spoke to his
1: father. Father, there is a man unlike any other, who comes down from the hills. He is the strongest in the world. He is an immortal from heaven. He ranges over the hills with wild beasts and eats grass. He fills in the pits, which I dig, and tears up my traps set for the game. He helps the beasts to escape, and now they slip through my fingers.
0: So Enkidu is destroying human devices for killing wild animals. He is nomadic, like wild herds. He eats grass, not grain and not meat. And notably, he is not immortal. So essentially, at this point in his life, he is 100% beast, except in the shape of a man. So the trapper's father tells him to go to the city of Unug and to find Gilgamesh and ask him for a quote-unquote temple prostitute, leaving aside the historical basis for the idea of a quote-unquote temple prostitute. In the story, we meet Shamhat, who is a sex worker on the temple payroll. Gilgamesh, who is the secular king, apparently has the power to send a temple official, which raises a lot of questions about the relationship between the palace and the temple, which we'll talk about more later, of course. On the third day, the herds came. They came down to drink, and Enkidu was with them. The small, wild creatures of the plains were glad of the water, and Enkidu with them, who ate grass with the gazelle and was born in the hills. And she saw him, the savage man, come from far off in the hills. The trapper spoke to her.
1: When he comes near, uncover yourself and lie with him. Teach him, the savage man, your woman's art. For when he murmurs love to you, the wild beast that shared his life in the hills will reject him.
0: So in the story we see a kind of theme that uncivilized man can be overpowered by quote-unquote woman's power indicating that the sexual desire of men for women, even wild half-beast men, might be a civilizing force. It's notable that the temple that Shamhat probably belongs to is the temple of Ishtar, or Inanna, the goddess of sexual love. For six days and seven nights they lay together, for Enkidu had forgotten his home in the hills. But when he was satisfied, he went back to the wild beasts. Then, when the gazelles saw him, they bolted away. When the wild creatures saw him, they fled. Enkidu would have followed, but his body was bound as though with a cord. His knees gave way when he started to run. His swiftness was gone. And now the wild creatures had all fled away. Enkidu was grown weak, for wisdom was in him. And the thoughts of a man were in his heart. So we see a connection between civilization, physical weakness, and human intelligence. In other words, now that the thoughts of a man are in his heart, he's no longer able to physically keep up with the animals. And the animals fear him like a hunter. So even though he's never eaten meat, only grass like them, and even though he can't chase them anyway, they still fear him because they associate him with human hunters. So Shamhat says, You are wise, Enkidu, and now you have become like a god. Why do you want to run wild with the beasts in the hills? Come with me. I will take you to strong-walled Unug, where Gilgamesh lives, who is very strong, and like a wild bull, he lords it over men. So this is another bull simile. Enkidu has been tamed, and now his opponent is wild. In Mesopotamian literature, broadly, an uncastrated wild bull is seen as the ultimate symbol of strength and virility. Of course, this comes up a lot in the Asag story. But Enkidu is domesticated now. He's separated from wild animals, and he's become wise like a god.